Good morning. Greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's truly a blessing to be gathered together again to worship. Well, back in preaching series through the Sermon on the Mount, I had looked at Matthew 6, the first 18 verses, which include Jesus' instructions regarding giving, prayer, and fasting. And when we looked at those verses, those 18 verses, I skipped over the verses that contain what we know as the Lord's Prayer, because I felt like that was would fit better to look at that uh, in a, in a, at a separate time. And so my intentions this morning were to do that, uh, go back to Matthew 6 and look at the Lord's Prayer. And I will read those verses here shortly, Matthew 6, 9 through 15. But I will have to admit to you at the beginning, that I have a small problem, and that is, as I compiled my notes, I got over one verse. So, bear with me, the Lord's Prayer might take a little while. Turn with me, if you'd like, to Matthew 6. We'll read verses 9 through 15. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And I'll include the next verses, which are kind of... Uh, a postscript to the prayer. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus had just addressed the subject of prayer in verses 5 through Eight, And he was mainly addressing there the issue of praying uh, hypocritically to be seen of men or as well as using vain repetition. The idea that we need to repeat our words in order to get through to God, to get God's attention. We, we have to just keep Uh, saying the same things over. I believe that, not sure if it's in these verses or elsewhere, that he uses the term uh, of babbling. Just the same thing over and over and over. And I want to point out that after that, the verse we didn't read here, but in verse 8, he points out to us that 
Our Heavenly Father already knows our needs before we ask. And I want to bring that out because that is an important thing for us to grasp. An important fact for us to keep in mind as we consider the subject of prayer. Because the fact that God already knows me and knows my needs will affect how I will approach God and how I will pray. Also, I wanted to point out at the beginning as we begin looking at this prayer is the fact that God uh, I'm getting lost in my notes here back to the fact of God already knowing our needs as we go through this prayer it is evident the way Jesus prayed because if we notice that this prayer is made up of simple requests and acknowledgments, it's not made up of, of demands or explanations or information to God about what our needs are. In many ways, this prayer is a prayer of admission of what our needs are. An admission of our insufficiency and our dependency upon God. An admission on our part that we need these things and we see that God is the source. And that's important as well for us to grasp that prayer is the opportunity for us to admit our needs, to admit that we are not sufficient in and of our own selves, and to recognize God for who he is. I also wanted to point out that this Prayer is viewed as a model prayer or a prayer that guides how we're to pray, not necessarily the prayer for us to pray. It's fine for us to pray it. But Jesus begins in verse 9 by saying, After this manner, pray ye, or pray in this way, pray like this. And so we can see in it a, a model for us to follow. So this morning, I'd like to look at, like I said, we're going to cover the first verse, but I'd like to begin looking at some of the elements of this prayer and what they mean to us. Also, I struggle here a little bit with my notes because I started out with a view of the entire prayer and then I didn't get real far. But I feel like some of this needs to be pointed out here at the beginning. Another theme we see in this prayer 
is that the prayer is plural. Nowhere in this prayer does it refer to me or mine, but it always refers to our and us. And I think it points out to us that the Christian life is a life of surrender to Christ and to his church. We're called to die to self. And so this prayer helps us to move from self of me and mine to surrender of us and our, looking out for the good of others, not just me. Our focus should be on the good of the body of Christ. Also, notice that the first three petitions of this prayer address who God is and our relationship to God. And the last three petitions deal with our needs. And I believe the lesson there for us is that it's important for us to have, first of all, a proper understanding and view of God to rec- so that we recognize who we are in relation to Him and we recognize how we're to address and relate to Him. That's, we, need to, we need to have a good grasp of that before we come to God with our needs. And that's why I didn't get very far in this prayer. Because the first verse deals with who God is and how we approach Him, how we view Him. And that makes so much difference in our life and how we pray and how we we relate to God and his word. So notice how he begins this prayer, who it is addressed to. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as as it is in heaven. The prayer is addressed to our Father, which art in heaven. If we've grown up in a church setting, which most of us have, we're probably pretty accustomed to hearing God referred to as our Heavenly Father. So our tendency, I could say maybe my tendency, is to read over this or to quote this prayer and say, Our Father which art in heaven, without giving it very much thought. But what does it mean, or what should it mean to us when we say these words, Our Father, which art in heaven? To say our Father settles our relationship with God. For us, it is, or it should be, an admission of who God is and who we are. It puts us in our proper place. 
The concept of God as a father, as our heavenly father, is, is a concept that we can, for the most part, identify with. Because all of us have had earthly fathers. So we have a frame of reference for what a father is and what a father does. Now, unfortunately, some earthly fathers have not been good fathers. But yet, even a person who has not had a father figure in their life, or a person who has had a father who has not been a good father, still has observed enough that that person can probably tell you pretty quickly what the characteristics of a good father are. So we have a frame of reference for what a father is. And that helps us to understand our Heavenly Father. So what does it mean when we address God as our Father? We are admitting that as our Father, God is the source of life. We owe our very existence to Him. He is our creator, and he is our sustainer. That's one characteristic of a father. And we have no right to elevate ourselves above him or make demands of him. We are under his authority. So he is our, also our supreme authority. We talk about, and I already used this term once this morning, but we talk about the importance of children having a good father figure in their life, in their life as they grow up. And that's common talk that we hear because we live in a world of broken homes, homes without fathers, families whose, where the father is negligent. And we see the, the sad results of that. You know, God has set up fathers to be a leader in the home. To give stability and structure. And that's important for children as they grow up. But as we address God as our Heavenly Father, we're placing ourselves under His authority. Just like it's important for a child to be submissive to the authority of their earthly father, when we come to God as our Heavenly Father, we're placing ourselves under His authority and leadership. We're humbling ourselves because self wants to be on the throne. Self wants to make the decisions and say how things are done. But as we truly come to God as our Heavenly Father, we're placing ourselves in a submissive way under His authority. 
along the lines of us being under his authority and him being our heavenly father, that puts us as his children. And have you ever thought about the different times that Jesus told us that as his followers, we are to be like children if we're going to be a part of his kingdom? I'd like to invite you to turn back to Matthew 18 and just read a couple of verses here. Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4. And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying here that unless we humble ourselves and become like little children, trusting and submissive to the authority of the Heavenly Father, we're not going to be a part of his kingdom. You know, it's easy for us to look at verses like these in Matthew 18 and say how that, well, we need to have a childlike faith and etc., You know, bring out the characteristics of a trusting child. But if we're a child of God, then he is our father. He is our authority. He is our leader. Also, as our father, God is approachable and has our good in mind. Again, like I said, some of us may have had earthly fathers that were not always the most approachable. And sometimes some people may have had a father who did not always have their best interest in mind. But that's a characteristic of a good father. They're there for their children. They'll listen when they have questions. They're approachable. And they have their child's best interest in mind. Your children look up to their fathers. When something goes wrong or they face a problem, where do they go? They go to dad. Because they recognize him often as having more knowledge or wisdom, or strength, or whatever it takes for the problem they're facing. And so they go to him looking for help. They recognize that when they don't have the answer or the strength needed for the task at hand, he will. And if he doesn't, he'll know how to figure it out, how to, where to go get the information needed or how to figure out how to do what needs done. Is that how we view our Heavenly Father? I believe that that's what Jesus was trying to help us to understand here, is that our Heavenly Father is our source to turn to with the problems and difficulties of life.
Now thinking of the comparison of our Heavenly Father and our Earthly Father, we can probably, most of us could probably think of a time when we brought a need or request to our Father and the response that we received was not what we wanted. It was not what we were expecting. And that disappointment could have been for various reasons. One is our earthly fathers are limited. They're not like God, all-powerful and all-knowing. So children do at times ask their fathers to do things that aren't humanly possible. But also that disappointment of not getting the response we anticipated could many times have likely come because our father knew best. He knew better than we did that what we're asking for was not for our good at that time. It wasn't for our best interests. You know, as children, our, our children in general have a fairly narrow and inexperienced view of life. You know, children have not yet often learned the concept of delayed gratification, that there's many times when to put off something that seems good now will allow us to experience something better later. And so a child often will bring requests that are not what is best for that child. So as parents, we say no, or we say not now, because we know what's best or what's better for that child. So as we pray to our Heavenly Father, we're placing ourselves under his authority to do the same to give to us according to his will, according to what he sees best for us, according to what he knows is best for us in the circumstances that we're in. We need to recognize that when God's answer to our prayer is different than what we think it should be, you know, when we pray, we, a lot of times have a pretty good idea of how God should answer. Don't we? You know, there are instances where we really don't know the answer. But many times when we bring a request to God, we know how, in our minds, God should answer that prayer. But yet, God knows what's best. You know, we're coming as children to an almighty heavenly father that knows what is best for each one of us. 
We need to recognize when his answer is different than we think it should be, that it's because of his love and his goodness to us. For our own good, not because God has an interest in denying us good things, but because he has something better that we can't see. We can't understand it right now, but he has something better if we but submit to his way. Just as a side note, as I was thinking about that, I thought of the the inverse of that for us as fathers is that if we always give in to our children and try to give them what they want, we're giving them a false sense of what a father is and a false sense of what our who our heavenly father is think about that fathers that next time your one of your children comes with a request and you don't think it's probably best if you tell them no you're doing the same thing that our heavenly father does for us So as we come to God as our Heavenly Father, we're recognizing Him that He is our Father and we are His children. And we're placing our full trust and dependence on Him. We're placing ourselves in a position of admitting that no matter what He brings, He has my best interest in mind in the long run. Our Father is a statement of surrender, of placing ourselves under God's control. We also, in this first verse, we acknowledge Him as our Father in heaven. By recognizing Him as our Father in heaven, we're elevating him to a much higher position than us and than our earthly fathers. It should remind us that he is high above us and that in reality we're quite lowly creatures. It helps to fix in our minds that there is a While God is our loving Heavenly Father, there is a separation because He is God. He is in heaven. He is the high and lofty one, and we are but His creation here on earth. So it helps us to remind us of that separation. It helps to fix in our minds that though He is our Father and we are His children, that it's not a buddy-buddy relationship. It's a relationship with the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. We hear people use terms to refer to God like the man upstairs or the big man, this type of thing. That is not the relationship that God has with his people. 
we're relating to one who is much higher and mightier than we. In Psalm 50, God addresses and rebukes the wicked because of that attitude. In Psalm 50, verse 21, he says this, These things thou hast done, in in previous verses he he mentions some, some things the wicked had done, and he says, And I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Here God is saying that the wicked thought that God was on their own level. They thought that he was altogether one such as they were. They failed to recognize God and respect him for who he was. They said, he's like us. He doesn't care that we're doing these wicked things. So as we acknowledge God as our Father in heaven, it should serve to humble us and to cause us to stand of all of the fact that God, who is so much higher and loftier than us, desires to accept us as his children, desires to care for us. The next phrase here in verse 9 is, Hallowed be thy name. I don't know what you think about when you think of that phrase, Hallowed be thy name. I pondered that a little bit, and I believe that growing up, you know, when I was younger and hearing this, I associated that with the third of the Ten Commandments that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And you know, not taking God's name in vain is a part of hallowing God's name. But that is not all that it involves. To hallow something is to make it holy or to set it apart for holy use. So God and his name are already holy. I don't have to and you don't have to do anything to make God holy. So rather this statement then is for us for our good, that we would view God as holy. We would view his name as holy. It's a call for us to hold God in a proper view. It's for God's honor, and it's for our good. Like I said earlier, this, this prayer, this, these verses, this first verse of this prayer puts us in a proper perspective with God. Holiness is a concept that we might find a little hard to put our finger on and say what holiness is. But holiness is the opposite of sin, the opposite of unrighteousness. And as we as I looked at this it reminded me of the two kingdom concept. God is the supreme ruler of his kingdom. 
And it's a kingdom of good. It's a kingdom of righteousness. Where everything is right according to God's standards. Satan as well is a ruler of a kingdom. A kingdom of evil. A kingdom of unrighteousness. Where nothing is right according to God's standards. So holiness is anything that belongs to God's kingdom. And unholiness is anything that belongs to Satan's kingdom. So to to hallow God's name is to give him the reverence and the honor that is due him because of his holy nature, because of who he is. Just as we recognize that God is in heaven high above us, we need to as well recognize that he is completely righteous, completely holy, and we need to treat him and his name with the honor and the respect that he is due because of his nature. I looked at several references that had to do with honoring God's holiness. And one that I won't turn to, I'll just read that I was impressed with, was the example of the seraphims that Isaiah saw in his vision of of the Lord in heaven. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, he said this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There in heaven, that gives a glimpse of the honor that God's holiness brought. These seraphims were there worshiping and declaring God's holiness. I also would like to invite you to turn with me to look at John's vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 4. I think I'm going to take the time to read this entire chapter. This is a glimpse into heaven that John was given. After this, I looked. Let me, before I read this, let me say this. There's a lot of things in here, talks about different creatures and Things that we can't, in our human minds, with our frame of reference, we can't understand. Let's not get hung up on those details, but rather pay attention to the effect of, of God's holiness, that what it had on the setting here in, in, in this vision. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard as it were, 
of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you these things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and before, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And the he, he that sat was to look upon like jasper, and as a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, and sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth, fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rested not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And then those beasts, and when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." This is just another glimpse into, into heaven and the reverence and the honor and the hallowing of God's name and his character there in heaven. And I think that these glimpses that we have into how the holy beings honor and glorify God should serve as a guide for us in how we revere and honor God's name and his character. I had to ask myself, in my, is, if my view of God and his holiness, the way that I hallow God's name, does it fit with the examples that we see here from Isaiah's vision. We see from John's vision of the honor that God is worthy. Just because we're lowly humans here on earth and not in heaven doesn't give us a pass to not honor and reverence God in the same way. I've heard people say before that if we aren't enjoying the things of God, the people of God, uh, etc., here in this life, we probably aren't prepared to enjoy them in the next life either. And I believe in the same way, if we are not honoring and hallowing God's name, holding it in reverence because of who he is, because of his holiness, then we probably 
aren't prepared to meet him in the next life, in this setting where those heavenly beings are crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So I believe that we probably all have room to grow in how we view God in his holiness. I wanted to go on here in Matthew 6 and look at the next verse, the petition for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thought maybe I could fit that in this morning, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought it might take another whole sermon. So we're going to stop here, but I hope that you're impressed with me what the first verse of the Lord's Prayer means as we pray it in honesty and sincerity. With our eyes fixed, let's, let's pray these, these words with our eyes fixed on our Heavenly Father. And let's make it our duty to bring honor and glory to His name. May God bless you.